Tonight we're going to be looking at the life of King Saul, Israel's first king, how he started, and then briefly give you an outline of what lay ahead for this guy and how he ended. But to present business, we have not only the people that are gathered around you here tonight, but we have a lot of people that are watching or listening. Some are listening on KNKT Live, some are listening on Massive around the entire state, Massive Radio 88.3. Some are watching live on the internet, it's hundreds of people, as well as this will be broadcast on national television. So would you just give a sweeping welcome to everybody who's participating tonight. We have an excited group, and that's what we love about you, your joy. Hey, listen, these guys are from Nashville, Tennessee. Isn't that a good place? But We look like it, don't we? I was going to say, you're from my neck of the woods originally, aren't you? Southern California boys. Now, how did you get to Nashville? Uh, I don't know. Why did you get to Nashville? <laughs> Uh, well, in 96, we recorded a CD with a label in Nashville, and we started doing a lot of touring out in that part of the country, and the Lord uh, took us out there to, to minister to a lot of uh, denominational churches, which is where our heart's at, tradition, people that are caught up in tradition. We want to get to those people. Praise the Lord for that. Can you talk in an accent like they do in Nashville? Y'all too? <laughs> hey, what's plural for, what's plural for y'all? All y'all. Uh. See, I know that. I've been around southern people. I've learned the lingo. I can, I, in fact, I can, I can do a southern accent. If you all want me to, I can do that. Now, if you're from the south, please forgive me if I offended you. You just said everybody's listening all over the place, man. <laughs> we have two or more. Three of these guys are brothers. That is, like they said, flesh brothers. But, but you're not. You've been in the band just, what, five months now? Is that right? Could you get up to the microphone? I'm going to talk to you. This is Arnie. And Arnie is a great guitar player, by the way, as you've seen. He's also known as Homeboy, by the way. Homeboy? Yeah, was, yeah, that, well, Renato homeboy. introduced me as Homeboy the very first time that we, we played, and it was, it was televised, and everybody knew me as Homeboy. They didn't know my name. I was Homeboy. From, henceforth, you shall be called Homeboy. But I understand that for a long time you toured with a rock band. Was it Grand Funk Railroad? It was Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad when Mark was doing his uh, solo uh, career. He, uh, he did uh, three uh, contemporary Christian albums from, uh, I think it was 88 through about 94, 93, 94, and that's when I was with him. Now, all you guys do a lot of touring. I mean, that's part of your mainstay. You've got to travel a lot of different places. And with that comes trials of being away from home, your family, temptations that you face on the road. So what we want to know is what musicians do who are Christian musicians to stay in step with the Lord spiritually, to not get out of line, to hold you guys or hold yourselves accountable. How do you, how do you stay on the road away from your family and walk with the Lord? Dude, that is so cool that you asked that for two reasons. Because one, we get to tell you and we get to ask for your prayer. Because a lot of churches don't even think to ask that question. And I, I thank you for that. And second of all, to answer the question, we, um, we need to be in fellowship in God's word. First and foremost, we can be at home and getting caught up in a nine-to-five job. And if we're not getting fed by God's word, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, being on the road does make it harder, absolutely. But we, we really try very hard to be just, you know, keep each other accountable, first and foremost, to 
being in God's word. And then, of course, we have a pastor, too, that we, we asked to be our accountability pastor and keeps us in check while we're on the road. Does he travel with you guys? Once in a while. He'll Sometimes he does. But you call him on the phone and talk to him. And yeah. Yeah. He just, he make, you know, he just, just checks the fruit, man. You know? Right. How's it going? How's it going? And he asks you the hard questions, doesn't exactly, he? Exactly. Tough, the tough ones. Now, here's something that's sort of an interesting idea because after your songs, people show their appreciation. They give you clap. They, they give you an applause. And they're saying, we love you, we appreciate you. That was a great job. We love your music. So you're hearing, a lot of the times, the plaudence of men. Uh, tonight, we're going to be studying King Saul, how he got started. And one of the things that seemed to really get to this guy was, was pride, was arrogance. And all of us have that sin nature, and we're tempted by pride. What is it, as musicians who are in the limelight, tell us about that particular temptation, how it affects you, how you deal with it. Let the stuck-up one deal with that question. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh, you know, you deal when <laughs> I, I'll backtrack just for a second here. Um, when I I've been a Christian for going on about eight years now, and uh, this thing I'm doing here, music, was my God in, in the past. And um, when I became a Christian, I, I gave it all to God. I gave up playing, and, and uh, I just got my life together with the Lord. And um, when I started playing in front of people again after this ministry got together. Um, I, you know, I started, I, I feel funny, you know, I, 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 it does feel a little awkward when people are applauding, but when, when I got saved, it was, it was because God touched me, and I, I wanted to glorify God, and that's all I want to do, so that praise, I mean, whatever clapping is, is directly going to, to Christ. That's, and, and in that's the world, exactly. in the world, you sing to glorify yourself. In the world, we spend most of our time singing in the world, and I remember very clearly what that's like, and you're going out so that people look at you, and when you begin to experience God and, and all that he is, you're humbled, man. The more you read God's word, the more you're humbled, and the more you see how great he is. And like he said, it's very uncomfortable for us, especially because we've, we've been in the world longer than we've been walking with the Lord. When people applaud, it's, it, it's, very un, very, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's very, you know, we feel thankful that God's mm -hmm. given us people that appreciate what we're doing, but at the same time, it also reminds me actually to stay humble before the Lord. And have you found that God has creative ways to keep you humble? He does, doesn't he? Absolutely. He has all sorts of tricks well, up his sleeves to you, do that. If you zoom in on my forehead, you'll see one of the big reasons <laughs> right now how God's keeping me humble. Is that the zit? That's my big pimple. Oh, it is a pimple. Yeah. That'll do it. There's no yeah. sense in trying to hide it. Uh, he actually did zoom in on it. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. This is Moses, by the way. We call him the MoCam because Moses <laughs> okay. has the camera. It's the MoCam. Hey, MoCam. Oh, what's up, MoCam? <laughs> yeah. Okay, then finally, what words would you give to musicians, somebody who wants to go out on the road, serve the Lord, use their musical talent, are going to be faced with all the things you're faced with? Would you give them any kind of parting encouragement or warning? Yes, I, I would say... Make sure you're plugged into a, a local body that's praying for you. Have people that you're accountable to. Bring your word and break it out every moment that you can. And, uh, and every time people clap for you, um, I learned this from Mark, actually, Mark Farner. And he says, give it unto the Lord. And when people say, you're great, you sound wonderful, and I, his response is always, praise the Lord, even though that sounds uh, so used. But it is true. It's praising God for the talent he's given me because it's not my talent. It's his talent. He's just, I'm just he just give it, put it into my body. So, Well, we praise God for the talent that you guys bring, the music that you bring, and encourage our hearts. They're going to sing another song before we start our study. God bless you guys.
As the first king of Israel, Saul enjoyed a distinct opportunity to accomplish great things. He certainly was equipped with extraordinary resources. Saul possessed natural talent and charisma, a strong family, as well as a nation looking for human leadership. Saul was also uniquely gifted with God's power, and he was surrounded by prophets such as Samuel. And yet, though Saul began as God's friend, he ended his life as an enemy of God, isolated and directly judged for his chronic and flagrant disobedience. How can this be? And what can we learn from this tragic story? Let's realize that unfulfilled potential is almost a proverb. Starting the Christian life well and enjoying great spiritual equipment is no guarantee that we will enter into eternity with abundance. Listen tonight as Pastor Skip takes us through 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 and points out five key words that narrate Saul's decline towards foolishness and destruction. Saul's name means asked for, and he is mentioned 388 times in six different books of the Bible. Let's turn to 1 Samuel and begin to study chapter 9, line on line. All right, chapter 9, 1 Samuel. The Chinese have a proverb to define fool. Outside noisy, inside empty. Outside noisy, inside empty. Unfortunately, that's how King Saul, the one they asked for, the one they requested, that's how he turned out. Very noisy, very self-centered, very empty eventually. Now, tonight we're going to look at two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10 in 1 Samuel. Go through most all of these verses. I'll sum up some of the sections so we get the general flow of it, so our time will benefit us. The children of Israel have cast their ballots. They've made their will, their vote known that they want a king. And they made it known so loud and so long that God will grant them their request. He gave them a king in his anger, we read last week, and took him away in his wrath. The vote has been cast. It's done. The king will be inaugurated in these chapters. There are no hanging chads. There are no dimpled chads. It's a clear-cut choice the people have made. Saul is an interesting character. He's sort of an enigma to me because he's the guy that could have been, should have been, but wasn't. He just made lots of bad choices. Power, it seemed, got to him. Back in 1945, Billy Graham was 27 years old. He began a very promising preaching ministry with Youth for Christ as an evangelist. Hundreds came out to hear him. I know that sounds weird for Billy Graham, who has thousands and up to millions who will come at one time to hear him, but he had hundreds coming to hear him. Very promising minister. At the same time, there were two other fellas who were in the ministry, very promising. In fact, seminary professors, presidents, and the Christian media thought these two guys were even more promising than Billy Graham. Charles Templeton was one of them. According to one seminary professor, they said he is the freshest voice in preaching today. Has a more promising career than anyone we have ever met at that age. 
The other man was named Braun Clifford, age 25. And he was hailed as the best evangelist for centuries to hit the church. In fact, one source said, At the age of 25, young Braun Clifford has touched more lives, he has influenced more leaders, and he has set more attendance records than any other clergyman in American history. You've heard of Billy Graham. I mean, who hasn't heard of Billy Graham? I was in Kiev, and we were in the Ukraine, and it was a Billy Graham evangelist teaching conference. All over the world, people have heard of Billy Graham. But if we were to have a Braun Clifford evangelistic teaching conference or a Charles Templeton evangelistic crusade, I don't know if anybody would come because nobody's heard of him anymore. And here's the reason why. Because the other two guys started really well but ended really poorly. Billy Graham started really well and has followed the Lord consistently and with integrity. And in these closing years of his life, he is still running the race and finishing well. Now, Charles Templeton, five years after the reports of his great and promising career, denied the faith, denied Christ, said he didn't believe anymore in Jesus Christ because certain things happened in his life that were painful to him. He had some set of expectations that God didn't fulfill, and because God didn't fulfill them and God didn't give him what he said he wanted at that time and what he expected, it was basically, I'm going to take my ball and go home. By the way, an interesting story about him. If you get Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, the opening chapter talks about an interview in the twilight years with Charles Templeton. I think you'll find it very enlightening. Braun Clifford, what happened to him? Well, he lost his ministry. He lost his family because of alcoholism. He was a drunk. He squandered money. He still managed to get a few churches to let him come and guest speak, and he died in Amarillo, Texas. And the local ministers in Amarillo took up an offering to buy a cheap casket to put him in it and ship him to the east so that he could be buried in a cemetery for the poor. And here's the point. You can have a great start and have a poor finish. At the same time, you may have started sort of rocky, not all that great, but you can finish well. At any point in our lives, we can make choices to glorify the Lord and to follow Him. And God will restore and redeem the years the canker worm has destroyed, the Bible tells us. So we're going to look tonight at a guy who started well. We're going to see his advantages spiritually, naturally, supernaturally. What he had going for him. Why he should have succeeded. And then we're going to briefly look ahead at some of the chapters before we get into them next time. And we're going to see what happened to him. A preview, so to speak. Jesus said something interesting. He said, My food, or my meat, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish it, complete it. He talked about finishing what the Father had given him to do. On the cross, he could say, Father, it is finished. Paul the Apostle wanted the same exact thing as he was facing trial, persecution, and even death in Jerusalem. He said in Acts chapter 20 to those elders that were gathered around him, 
who said, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to get killed. He said, what is that to me? I don't even consider my own life dear unto myself because I want to finish my race, finish my race with joy and the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me. He wants to finish well. And I think about this quite often. I look back on the day that I met the Lord, what he did in my life, how he changed me, but then I want to take inventory of my own life. How am I doing now? Am I the kind of person who has to look back on my Christian life and remember how good it used to be? I used to walk closely with the Lord. How are you doing now? How's the race progressing at this stage of your life? And how does the future look? What kind of commitments have you set in stone that will enable, by God's grace, you to finish the race? We're not going to look at it tonight by reading it, but I'm going to sort of spill the beans in advance. Saul will sum up his own life later on, chapter 26 of this book. He will use nine words that become the banner statement of his entire life. His motto, unfortunately. He said, indeed, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Now, maybe he said that in an unguarded moment when his prideful walls weren't up and he was just feeling tired and low down and he just admitted, I have been such a fool as I look back over my life. I have erred exceedingly. I have played the fool. Unfortunately, that is the same banner statement that is written over many lives of instruments that God chose, wants to use, but because we still have free will. Wrong choices were made. The promises of God in their lives were unfulfilled because of disobedience. Now, the contrast with Saul is remarkable because he begins so well and so poorly, begins by being given this huge promotion as king, ends by consulting not God but a witch a medium, because he wasn't hearing from God anymore desperately. No matter what it took, he wanted to hear some spiritual voice. So he consulted a witch at Endor. Outside noisy, inside empty. I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly. Let's begin in chapter 9, and let's look at the first few verses together. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorat, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. You're going to have a test on those words at the end of the night. See if you remember them. A mighty man of power. What I want to draw your attention to in the first few verses of chapter 9 are the natural advantages that he had. And by natural, I mean there were just these God-given positive attributes that were a part of his makeup, his natural makeup. They gave him sort of an edge as being a leader. First off, he had a good heritage. It mentions that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I know the tribe of Benjamin's a dinky little tribe. In fact, he's going to say that. Oh, I'm just from the tribe of Benjamin. But that was a noteworthy tribe. It was the tribe that Paul the Apostle will come from, and he will list that in his pedigree. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin in the book of Philippians. Now, remember back in your Bible history to Genesis? Benjamin was the favored son, besides Joseph, of Jacob that was born by his wife, Rachel. Joseph was sold into slavery. Dad thought he lost him. His affection now went to this son, Benjamin, son of my right hand. So it became a, a favored, noteworthy tribe. That was his pedigree. Kish is mentioned. That's his father. It says that he was a mighty man of power, or an important dude in a modern translation. I don't know if dude would be in a translation, but perhaps if one were to be written today by Generation X, it would say he was an important dude, a mighty man of valor, important, wealthy, influential. How do we know that? Well, it says so, and besides that, it describes what he owns. He lost donkeys, not a donkey, donkeys, meaning he had a few of them. In those days, that's like saying this guy had a fleet of pickup trucks, because that's what a donkey essentially was back then, is a pickup. But it was a pickup with a brain, a stubborn brain, so they could go on their own, they could get lost, they could wander, and this is what happened. The pickups are missing. They decided to drive off, and it will be Saul's job to get them. So his first natural advantage is that he has a great heritage, a good heritage. Verse 2 brings up another one of his natural advantages. And he had a choice and handsome son. What a description of a guy. Choice and handsome. Would you love to meet one of those gals? Single gals. I'm addressing that to now whose name was Saul. Saul means asked for or requested. Perfect fit. The people requested, asked for a king. God said, you asked for it. Here he is. Requested. Saul asked for. There was not, notice this description, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Second natural advantage, good looks, handsome, choice, height. To the people in ancient times, that was a very important feature, to be able to have your leader, your political leader, your king, look good. I mean, after all, he's sort of like, he, he is the representative of your nation. You want him to look good. And he was tall, he was handsome, and it was, it was greatly admired and esteemed to have a person of looks and height. After all, remember who their enemies are. The Philistines. They got a couple of tall guys on their first string outfit, don't they? Like a nine-footer forward named Goliath and his brothers. So, okay, great, well, we got a tall king. He's taller than everybody, and he looks good. handsome. Now, I wonder, doesn't say so, but I wonder because I've read the whole book of 1 Samuel, as many of you have. He'll become very arrogant later on, and I wonder if it doesn't start here. I wonder if this guy doesn't put the crown on in front of the mirror one too many times and checks himself out. By the way, I read an interesting truth about men and women and mirrors. 
They put mirrors up in public places, not just health clubs, but public places, sidewalks, banks in Southern California. They discovered that men look at themselves, check themselves out more than women. <laughs> just little trivia, I thought I'd drop that your way. I almost heard hand claps. That's not a good thing to clap at. Some of you gals are writing that down. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. The pickups are gone. And Kish said to his son Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim, through the land of Shalishah. They did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but he didn't find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. A third natural characteristic that I noticed here, good relationship with his dad. Good relationship with his dad. And I'll tell you why this is important. He's a son who's an adult who's obedient to his father. He's honoring his father. His dad said, I got lost pickups. Go get them. Go pick them up. Go bring the donkeys home. Find them. He obeys him. He didn't say, ah, oh, dad, come on, man. I got my own gig going on. Send your servants out, not me. I'm the favored son. I don't want to do it. No, he obeys his father, and he goes with the servant, shows that he can work cooperatively, he recognizes authority. He is submissive to his father's authority, though an adult. He is cooperative in working with others. And something else, he is sensitive and compassionate. Because notice it says in verse 5 that when they couldn't find the donkeys, he said, come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys. And he becomes worried about us. Now he's thinking about dad's personal feelings. So these are good traits. These are healthy traits. A diligent worker, compassionate toward his father, can work well with others. These are all natural advantages. Good heritage, good looks, and he has a good relationship to authority or his father. Now, that's good because he's going to be a king. So naturally, since he has been raised in treating his father with respect, he ought to treat God with respect, right? That's how he should do it. That's not what happens. Verse 18 Saul drew near to Samuel. I'm skipping ahead just a little bit. Let me fill you in. Let me back up. He goes everywhere, can't find the donkeys. He hears there's a man of God. Let's go ask the man of God. The man of God will tell us where these are. We hear that God uses him. God speaks to him. Well, in the meantime, while he is seeking the man of God to find out where the donkeys are, God speaks to the prophet, the man of God, Samuel. So instead of going all the way to verse 18, look at verse 14 of our chapter. So they went up to the city. This is the city of Ramah. This is where the prophet is. There was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. That's where they're going to have the sacrifice. Now, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, 
for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Something struck me today as I was reading this. The Lord whispered in his ear, gave him revelation, told him something. What I want you to do is compare this. Go back to chapter 8 for just a moment. And look at verse 21. Once the people say, no, we want a king. Give us a king. We're not going to settle for anything. We've cast our vote. Verse 21, and Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. When you whisper in God's ear, God will whisper in your ear. The Bible says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. God wants to hear from you. God wants to speak to you. But he has made the move. He has sent his son. He has bridged the gap. Now he wants you to talk to him. What's on your heart? Pour out your heart to him. What are you going through? What are you feeling because of the day, because of what your boss said, because of the fights you had with your kids or your wife or your husband? The anxiety in your heart. Whisper that. Repeat that in the Lord's ear. Oh, I don't want to bother God. He's got important people to listen to, not me. This is so trivial. Whisper it to him. Tell it to him. God speaks to those who open the channels of communication. Everything we read about Samuel so far, he brings to the Lord in prayer. Now God is speaking to him, whispering to him, giving him that revelation. He has drawn near. God is now speaking. Hey, there's a guy coming. He's looking for donkeys. The pickups are lost, but he's the guy. He's the guy. Verse 17, so when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near, verse 18, to Samuel in the gate, and he said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Now, they called him the seer. There's an explanatory note in our chapter. They would call prophets in those days seer because seers, prophets, saw the future. They saw what nobody else saw. They could see into the will of God. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them. Don't worry about the pickups. They've been found. And on whom... What a segue this is. Don't worry about the donkeys, buddy. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and your father's house? I think Saul went, huh? What's that? What did you just say? The desire of all of Israel's on me and my father's house? Look at the next verse. Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? One of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Notice how he begins. And this is the fourth advantage, natural advantage, part of his natural makeup God has given him. He has the right estimation of himself, a good self estimation, a good 
self-evaluation. He's humble. He didn't stay that way, believe me, but he starts that way. Already in chapter 15, when he's well into his kingship, he becomes very arrogant. And the prophet will say to him, I remember when you were little in your own eyes. Once you were little in your own eyes. That's the right estimation of being used by God. I've noticed something about God. God doesn't look for those people who go, God, you're passing up somebody really cool here. You ought to be using me more than you do. After all, I'm smarter than most of them. I'm a better preacher than half of them. I know more theology than most of them. I'm very talented. I can't believe that you haven't used me to an incredible degree yet. I only want to be Billy Graham's assistant. What's the big deal? In fact, I'm better than Billy. No, God looks for those people often who, like Saul, will say, Lord, did you make a mistake? Are you sure you're calling me to do it? That's how he started. That's how Gideon started. He said, I, I'm the least of all the tribes of Israel, and my father's house is the least in our entire tribe. Paul the apostle said, I'm less than least of all the saints. Moses said, Lord, I can't go. I can't even speak. Send somebody else. It's interesting that God, when he calls, he equips, but he doesn't always call those who are naturally equipped. Now, this guy has some natural advantages, but the right estimation of yourself is important. The Bible talks about being puffed up in your own eyes. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, and this guy knew that he was. You know, pride, the first sin, destroys everything. I've watched it. I've watched how pride destroys marriages. I've watched husbands and wives become so entrenched in their position, I'm right, and not budge. And it's almost like the hardest words to say for them are the words, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 you, you ought to be sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Pride destroys marriages. I've watched it destroy churches. I've watched churches split and break up into power struggles and groups fighting against one another. I've seen it destroy friendships. It destroys everything. It will destroy a nation. It will destroy a ministry. A guy who was talented, a guy who was gifted by God, it will destroy him. When Jim Baker got out of prison after he was arrested with the PTL scandal. I was in North Carolina when he was just released, and I had lunch with him. Franklin Graham set it up. A few of us were together, just three of us. He was a broken man. He poured out his heart. And so we were naturally interested on his take in retrospect, looking back over PTL ministries, what had gone wrong, where the problem lay. And he confessed, it was my pride. It was my pride that destroyed my ministry. It's always a danger when God begins to use any person for any reason. It's easy to become inflated. There's a sense of self-importance. Don't they realize how important I am? But if you can manage to stay small in your own eyes, 
and be amazed that God is using you. I can't believe God used me tonight. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And all the plaudits goes to him. Those are the people that God continually uses. Verse 22, now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor. You know, Saul's head must be spinning right now. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. He was in a place of honor among those who were invited, and there were about 30 persons. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early. It was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of his house, saying, Get up that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, both of them, and went outside, he and Samuel. Now, to our ears, that sounds really weird. Hey, we're going to have a heart-to-heart on the roof. Because American roofs, except for around here, are pitched. Now, some of them are pitched around here. There's a flat roof. But in those days, there was a, a staircase, usually on the outside of the house, that led to a patio, sometimes covered patio, on the roof. It was where families would go out in the, in the evening, especially in the summer. You don't want to be in the house. It's hot. No air conditioning. So you relax. You enjoy the sunset on the, on the roof. That's the patio. It's a place of leisure. It's a place of fellowship many times, family intimacy. He brings him up there. After sitting him down, honoring him with a meal, now they're close together. Hello? Verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Oh, it's right on the stage. You want me to get it? As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, verse 27, look down in the Bible now again. Fun's over. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. I want you to notice something here that that I think is precious. Here's a guy interested in donkeys. It's an important task. He's obeying his dad. Where's the donkeys? Have you seen the donkeys? No. Have you seen the donkeys? I'm going to go to another place. Have you guys seen my donkeys, my dad's donkeys? No. Now he comes to the seer. And Samuel says, before you do any work of finding donkeys, by the way, your donkeys are fine. Don't worry about them. Sit down. Let me honor you with a meal. Relax. Fellowship. And then... Stay here, and I'm going to announce to you the word of the Lord. I don't know how easy it was for Saul to relax. I bet he was there going, got to get those donkeys, got to get those donkeys. My dad's going to be really mad. He's going to be worried. Don't worry about the donkeys. God has something bigger for you. Now, God was concerned about the donkeys. That's why the word came to him. Don't be anxious about the donkeys. Folks, God cares about your donkeys, your business, the problem you're dealing with, that you're anxious about. But just like the word of God to him was, don't worry about the donkeys, you're royalty, man. There's something bigger going on here than donkeys. Realize that tonight, whatever issue you face, 
Whatever donkeys you've lost and you're worried about recovering, whatever task it is you're into, step back from that for a moment and let God speak his word to you. Relax in his presence. He'll take care of your donkey. There's something bigger here. He has a plan for your life that is bigger than your donkey's. But we have our eyes focused just on the little task of got to get the donkeys. And God has this huge plan. We're royalty, man. We're children of the king. He's got a royal assignment for us. That's where life becomes exciting. Let God worry about them donkeys. Don't be anxious. You stand, you sit, and you let the word of God be declared to you. Enter into something bigger tonight than just the task. Then Samuel took a flask, verse 1, flask of oil, and poured it on his head. D does that sound odd to you? Listen to the word of God. God has something to say to you. <laughs> Grease, folks, oil. <laughs> and after he dumps oil all over his head, he kisses him. And he says... It's not because, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. It's down in the Bethlehem area. They will say to you, the donkeys <laughs> which you went to look for have been found. There's the pickups. Now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Anointing was not uncommon in ancient times. Other cultures did it. Other Semitic nations around Israel performed an anointing procedure. But this is interesting. The kingdoms around Israel, when they would anoint characters, they didn't anoint kings. Egypt, for example, poured an oil substance on vassals for the kings, the servants of the kings, those under the authority of the king. And that was well known, so that probably, as this is going on, the symbolism is you're a leader, but you're under God's authority. You are a servant to the people. You are a servant to the king. That's what the anointing was all about. Many of the nations, most of the nations, didn't use oil when they would anoint leaders or vassals, but they would use animal fat. Now, that's if, if olive oil's gross, think of the fat, distilled, boiled-down fat of a bull or an ox. It was thought by pagan cultures that if you poured the body fat of a, of a bull over a leader, that it would infuse him with the strength of a bull or an ox. But the Jews, according to the scripture, used olive oil. See, they didn't want their leader to be an animal. They wanted their leader to be rooted and grounded and fruitful. None of that superstition. This is God's anointing. Be plugged in. Be rooted in the Lord. Those are his natural advantages. We're in chapter 10, and we get some supernatural advantages. In other words, he had a makeup that gave him an edge for leadership, but also God, though he was the people's choice, God's choice will be David, God is going to give him all that it takes for him to succeed. He's going to give him power. He's going to give him his presence. Verse 3. You shall go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. This is the prophet still speaking now to Saul. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. 
They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. He's just telling them everything that's going to happen. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city. You will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Literally, it's sons of prophets. You're going to meet sons of the prophets. It is thought that Samuel was a mentor to young prophets. He had like a school of prophets. Not for profit. It was for prophets. It was a non-profit organization <laughs> to raise up prophets, spokesmen, spokespeople of God, young sons of the prophets. The prophesying here implies speaking or singing a message from God or instruction accompanied to music. You know, it's fascinating to look at music through the Bible because God places an emphasis on joyful music. Stringed instruments, there's tambourines here. Now this is, this is even before organs, folks. There's no organ in the Bible. This is way before that. God's using guitars, stringed instruments. Well, the ancient equivalent of a guitar, tambourine, and there's a prophesying going on, a musical accompaniment in the Word of God. Verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, that's a song, let it be when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Now there is a supernatural advantage. You have God's presence with you. You're going to have God's power. You're going to be able to do something you've never done before. And God is with you. Do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. There is nothing greater in the service of the Lord, in the ministry, in life, in life, than to be able to daily know God is with you. God is with me today. I don't have to be afraid of anything. I'm not going to fear. God's with me. I'm facing a tough situation to work, but God's with me. I've got to discuss something with the boss. It's not going to be easy, but the Lord's going to be with me. You know, this is the same promise that Paul got when he reached Corinth, and he was afraid, and the Lord Jesus came to him and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Speak. Don't keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I'm with you. How many times servants of God would absolutely collapse, fold, give up, go home, quit the ministry, were it not for this knowledge, God's here. God's called me. read an interesting story about a missionary. John Patton was his name. He was a pioneer missionary to an island group called the New Hebrides. The people that inhabited these group of islands were cannibals. He married his wife moved to this group of islands as a missionary, as a preacher of the Word of God. God kept him safe for a while. God kept him very happy for a while. In that group of islands, as a missionary, he and his wife had a child, a son. They were so happy. God has given us a child. God's prospering us. God's keeping us safe. God's going to prosper our ministry. But then his wife became ill, and his son became ill, and both of them died. 
everything that he expected fell. He had to dig the grave for his wife and his son with his own hands. Then, because there were cannibals on that island, he had to lie on the grave, stay with it for days as the decomposition of the bodies took place because cannibals would often dig up fresh graves for their food. So imagine this husband and father living and sleeping on the grave of his wife and his son. And he writes in his journal of that occasion, and he said, were it not for the knowledge, the confidence that God was with me during that dark moment, I would have gone mad. The Lord is with me. Powerful testimony of faith. Verse 8, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. Transformation is taking place. God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. This is Saul, man. And it happened when all who knew him formally saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Do you see it? The Holy Spirit is all over this guy. He has every reason to succeed. He has natural capabilities with his looks, with his heritage, with his relationship to his father, with his estimation of himself. He has the power of God. He has the presence of God. He becomes a transformed, a different man. What God has called him to do, God will enable him to do. In fact, I read this, and it's almost like it can't be the same person in these beginning chapters and in the rest of the book. It can't be, but it is. He begins well, he finishes poorly. He makes bad choices after this. Beginning in verse 17, we come to another advantage, spiritual advantage, supernatural advantage. He's got God's presence, God's power, and he's got God's people around him, a team. Samuel called the people together to the Lord as Mizpah. And said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes, by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. <laughs> Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, He's over there, hidden among the equipment. He's a big old lug. It's hard for him to hide. He's probably crouched down. This could be good. He could have that low estimation of himself. 
He's saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I can't do this. I'm, I'm least of all the people. I shouldn't be in charge. Or, I mean, he could be embarrassed because Samuel says, okay, God's given you a king, but it's because you begged him for it, and it's not God's will. Here he is. He's thinking, oh, great. I'm the guy that shouldn't be here. I mean, he didn't ask for the job, right? It was Samuel who said, you're the guy. All of Israel has been asking, requesting for you. They asked for it. They got you. So it could be that in hearing this, he goes, oh, I get it. But the power will get to him. It will intoxicate him, as you'll see. So they ran, verse 23, brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards, that kingly presence. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. That's where it started. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, and he wrote it in a book and laid it before, up before the Lord. Do you remember that? Do you remember our studies back years ago in Deuteronomy 17? Let me refresh your memory. There was stipulations. When a king gets on the throne, God said, there's a few ground rules. Ground rule number one, he has to be a local boy, not a foreigner, somebody homegrown from the Jewish nation. Number two, he cannot multiply horses to himself. Number three, he can't multiply wives to himself. Number four, he can't multiply silver and gold to himself. All of those Solomon will break. He multiplies horses, wives, everything. The fifth stipulation is he himself was to write a book of the law, copying it down so that in writing it by himself, handwritten, he would get to know it better. And then he would keep his handwritten copy of the Old Testament law, the the Torah, the first five books of Moses, at hand for him to refer to. So he's reminding them of what God said back in Deuteronomy. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house, verse 26, and Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. Okay, okay, the people asked for a king. They shouldn't have done it. They get rebuked again for it. You don't want God to rule over you. You want a king. But God, because he loves his people, gives them this king, a man of natural capabilities, a man of supernatural capabilities. God promises his power. God promises his presence. And now God gives him people, a team, a staff. I love this description. Valiant men whose hearts God has touched. You know, you can do anything with a group of men or women who are valiant, whose hearts God has touched. You don't need a whole bunch of people to get a lot done. You don't need a huge, enormous organization. All you need is a few people burning on fire for Jesus Christ. Jesus had 12, 11 actually, and told them, go out into all the world. That's your homework and preach the gospel to every living creature. But after the resurrection, these guys were on fire and they did it. So the capabilities, the advantages, I think of our church. There's a lot of men and women whose hearts God has touched. We have a great staff. We have a great volunteer staff. 
And so it's my prayer that as we began well, that we as a fellowship, as well as individuals, will finish well. We have all of the advantages. We have the Spirit of God upon us. We have a great team of men and women, lay and professional staff who want to serve the Lord. No reason why we shouldn't succeed. No reason. But the warning is Saul. Some of the rebels, verse 27, said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. It was customary to give some kind of honoring gift to this guy who's going to be the king. But he, smart guy, he held his peace. Humble. He held his peace. I would just throw that battery and just, no, I'm just kidding, just turn it off. No, I don't want to answer it. Thank you. Yeah, just, there's a power button on it. That would be good. Hence the announcement before the service. Okay, that's all. That's how we started. What went wrong? What went wrong? A guy with all of this advantage, what went wrong? Number one, arrogance, chapter 13. Just keep that in your mind. Look forward to reading about that arrogance, chapter 13. There's a battle with the Philistines. In that battle, Jonathan is the guy who attacks. Saul is the one who blows the trumpet. He toots his own horn. His son does the work. He wants the notoriety. Arrogance. Problem number two, indifference. Indifference. In the very next chapter, chapter 14, Saul's army is reduced to 600 men. They haven't eaten. They're malnourished. They're hungry. They're weakened condition. But Saul gives a lame order. Being indifferent to the needs of his men, he says, nobody's going to eat until we beat those Philistines. Now, he should have said, go have a good meal, get a good rest, then we'll go to battle. Nobody's going to have anything until you beat the Philistines. Lame order. Number three, disobedience. Disobedience. Chapter 15. The directive of God is destroy utterly the Amalekites. So we're going to talk about that just war syndrome in the coming weeks. The just war. Go out and destroy them all, God said. But Saul comes back with the best animals and the king, Agag, alive. And he comes up with a very flaky excuse, and he says, We brought the best animals to sacrifice to the Lord. We want to sacrifice to God. Praise God. And Samuel says, To obey is better than sacrifice. You've just disobeyed God. So arrogance, indifference, disobedience. Another mistake will be preeminence, wanting to be on top. Do you remember what happens after David slays Goliath? There's a song that hits the charts. It's on the top 40. It's played every day. All the women are singing it, which makes Saul angry. The song says, the main theme of the song, the chorus, David or Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. Ooh. They're singing about him, not me. He wanted to be preeminent. And a jealous spirit to kill David inflames him for the rest of his days to the very end. And then finally, the last mistake is irreverence. That's chapter 28. We'll get to that. Chapter 28 is about Saul who wants to hear from God. God has nothing to say because he has been arrogant. He has been disobedient. But Saul wants to desperately hear from something, someone. So he consults the witch at Endor. It's a very tragic end. As we examine this man, 
understand this, it didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen. It wasn't written in stone. He could have at any point changed, but he didn't. He didn't. F.B. Meyer writes about failure among God's people, indiscretion. And he says, this is the bitterest of all, to know that suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing, that the vulture which, which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Oh, me, he says, this is pain. This has happened because I am reaping what I have sown. So here's the, here's the directive tonight. If you look at your heritage, and as you look at it, you realize all that God has given to you, and then you're realizing what you have done with what God has given you, and it's not quite what God had in mind, it's a time to change. I got a phone call right before the study in the back prayer room. He said, can somebody there pray for me? Gave me his name. And he said, there was a time when I walked closer to the Lord. I knew the Lord. And I've wandered from him. I haven't been in fellowship. I haven't been in the word. I've followed my temptations. I've been disobedient. I want to give my heart back to the Lord. At any point, Saul could have done that. But here's a man who in tears realized, I have reaped what I've sown. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to quit that. I want a whole new harvest. And we prayed in the back room, and he gave his life again. He rededicated his life to Christ. He, in repentance, turned. New beginning, new start. As we pray and you consider your life, ask yourself, am I on the track that Saul was on? I've got that heritage. I'm raised in America. I have access to Bible teaching on the radio, on television, churches everywhere. I've got this great spiritual heritage. I'm here at this fellowship. I've gone to this church for a while. I haven't been obedient to Christ, even though I have that great heritage of the American culture, Bible-based culture, at least at one time, here in a church. Maybe you were raised with Christian parents, but maybe you squandered it. Folks, you need to make a decision tonight that you're not going to just float downstream anymore, that you're going to stop. If you're on a path of disobedience, something that's displeasing the Lord, that you're going to stop right now in your tracks, turn around and get right with God. Lest you say toward the end of your life, like so many have, indeed, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have looked in overview at a man who had it all, naturally, supernaturally. Supernaturally and spiritually, you gave him all that it took to fulfill the task at hand, your presence, your power, your people. And he squandered it, Lord. He played the fool. And he admitted in that weak moment, I have made great mistakes, erring exceedingly. Lord, what we have understood, though, fundamentally about you is that you are so forgiving. You just love it when we say, I'm going to turn. I'm going to stop this. And I'm going to give my life to, 
to God, to Christ. Lord, we who have been given such a rich heritage spiritually in this country, in this fellowship, in this city, in our families, in our friends, we don't want to let this moment go by unheeded. We want to respond to it, respond to you. So as we're praying right now, and the Holy Spirit of God may be coming upon you, directing you, wanting to give you a new heart, change you into another person, make all things new. Maybe for the first time ever, maybe it's a rededication. It could be that you are looking back to a time when you walked close to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're just drifting now. You're letting the crowd push you in whatever direction. You're in neutral. It's time to stop, and you can do it by God's power and God's strength. Or maybe you recognize, well, I've been religious. I've kept ceremonies. I've kept rituals. I've kept God somewhere up there. But for all practical purposes, you're not a believer. You're an atheist. You've lived that way. You may have said you believed in God, but you've lived your life apart from him. Now is the time, after hearing this message, to do business with God to get your heart right with them. If you've wandered from them or if you've never asked them into your heart. So I'm going to ask you right now, if you want to do that, to raise your hand. And I'm going to pray for you as we close this service. You're saying, Skip, pray for me. I'm going to give my life to Christ tonight or I'm going to get right with him tonight. I'm going to turn back to 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 him tonight.